This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. Joining me today is Gaurav Sinha. He's an Associate Director of Modern Alpha and Asset Allocation at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Gaurav and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of some investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really special show for you today. Um, we have two uh, return guests with Gaurav. We also have Srinivas Thiruvadantai, who's the Director of Research at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. Srinivas, you cover so much more than India in a lot of your work at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. And there's so much going on in the global economy and global markets. Let's just check your pulse. What do you think about the U.S. and the global economy today and, and all that's going on? So the global economy is at a very dangerous uh, fork here, um, especially with the trade war. I mean, people are un- underestimating the how severe a trade war can be, especially in this globalized economy where there is so many interlinkages and therefore so much of investment that is related to all these supply chains and interlinkages. Um, and to some extent, the last couple of weeks, you can see the markets have woken up to, to the risks here. Uh, and so, and, and you know, you, you've been seeing the bond markets to some extent doing this. Um, and, and, and the stock markets are starting to follow suit. So without a resolution uh, to, the, to the trade, doesn't mean a complete resolution. Without a resolution to the trade, the global expansion would be threatened. And, and how do you think about the U.S. cycle? Like, and certainly the trade war is one major risk. We see that right. on the headlines every day. The markets do not like the trade war, although they've been somewhat, you know, they, in some ways, would you say they've started to price in that it's not going to happen? It's still seen, like, compared to the fourth quarter where they were really pessimistic, you had a big snapback. It's not, it, you know, they're down 5% from the highs in the S&P 500, but would you say the lack of a deal is priced in yet? No, la- lack of a deal is not priced in at all. Um, the U.S. by itself is slowing because the tax, um, I mean, the tax cut stimulus um, were is, is fading. Um, by itself, the U.S. economy would not be threatened were it not for what's happening around the rest of the world and the trade war. Um, it's an aging expansion, but by itself, it was not looking like it was going to immediately go down. Um, but with the trade deal, uh, trade, I mean, the, the trade tensions, there is, a, there is a real risk. And you can see that. I mean, the fourth quarter, too, uh, you saw how the stock market ultimately caught up to the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, it's a globalized economy. Even if we don't export a whole lot, our companies are global companies. 
and and because of that, um, you have a risk through the financial side. When the stock market goes down 20%, as we saw in the fourth quarter, you have retail sales had a very severe decline in the in in December. Most people will point you out to consumer confidence and to the job market, which is doing well. The problem is our economy has become much more top heavy. So five percent of the people, the top five percent, account for like forty percent of consumption, and a lot of the discretionary spending is accounted disproportionately by the top five ten percent of the people, and they are affected by the stock market. Yeah. So that's the sort of inequality story, and in some ways that the wealth concentrated, and then but they're also doing a lot of the spending. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, so do you do you are you optimistic that a trade deal comes together, or do you think? I mean, it's it's interesting they're fighting it very publicly. Uh, that doesn't seem from just aging culture that that would be a winning strategy. I mean, it seems very hard for China to quote unquote save face in that type of negotiation style that we have in the U.S. What's what's your thoughts? Well, you know, now we are veering into something that is certainly beyond my uh, my big, uh, pay grade, which is uh, politics and and uh, making political forecasts. From uh, I mean, we are certainly not in our own. Thinking and in our own positioning, we are certainly positioned much more bearishly. But I will say that we tend to be much more bearish than on the average. Um, so uh, that's that. I think the main issue here is, as you rightly pointed out, the the rhetoric has been pitched up, which probably is not very conducive to making a trade. Making a deal that allows both uh, sides to save face, yeah. right? And that's really the issue. Um, had the rhetoric not been pitched up uh, and some back channels been used, um, some face saving deal, even if it is not a substantive deal, could have been done, which doesn't rock the boat too much. Uh, but now both sides are ratcheting it up, and which makes it hard to see how they're going to back down. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of history behind it. And we in the US don't tend to be that. Um, I mean, Americans are to some extent like Indians, you know. They are living in the present. They don't really know that much or care that much about history. Um, whereas I think the rest of the world remembers a lot of slights and things like that from very distant past. And for the Chinese, the 19th century where there were a lot of unequal treaties and where they were... Like, they were the uh, on the receiving end of the colonialists, although they were never directly colonized. Um, is this certainly a major factor in their thinking about are they being browbeaten here? And so that those are the risks here in terms of trying to get a deal. Now, for markets that are doing better, Gorb, I want to bring you into this conversation because we, we were talking just not so long ago. Right. And uh, India was underperforming a little bit, but as Modi's chances to win it started right. ticking up, it started doing well. And you had said very 70%. correctly 70% right. of Modi winning. And now, handicapped, so for people who aren't plugged into what's happening in the elections, describe what just happened from the elections and yes. what, what shook out. So, what happened? Earlier this week was that Modi came back uh, as a second-term prime minister of India. Now it may not sound necessarily, a, you know, a, a very extraordinarily. Uh, difficult thing but in the Indian political context his political party won second time a clean majority which has happened for the first time since 1971 now remember in India there are a bunch of political parties I think there were more than 300 political parties that were fighting elections for this term we have two and we can't even get a third <laughs> like a third you know somewhere down the middle you got 400 exactly and the vote share for Modi was 49% very close to 50% which has been which is the all time 
him highest so he, this is everyone was expecting him to win people expected that he'll come back to par with uh, maybe slightly reduced numbers than the last time but he actually came back with an even higher numbers and from an investment standpoint why is this important is because i'll give you a personal anecdote uh, he, some of these reforms that he implemented on the ground whether it's demonetization or the uh, gst which changed the taxation structure of the entire country overnight i happened to be in india when the gst or the taxation uh, reforms were implemented and actually it was two days before i got married and i was talking to all these small and medium you know uh, businesses that were uh, working on the ground whether it was caterers in my wedding or you know decoration uh, uh, providers in the wedding and they were all confused as to how they would work around these taxes and everybody was you know very upset with this hush hush implementation of uh, these reforms and he still came back with par so if i were in modi's shoes i would think that you know i implemented some really uh, um, difficult reforms and i came back to par so i should probably push the boundary a bit more and go for even more difficult reforms in my second term so that's my you know a uh, silver lining in the election results that came out i mean it wasn't just the taxes it was demonetizing taking absolutely. money out absolutely and so they people have to now pay their taxes there's less black money which exactly and and the lot of first term of his government was spent in putting guardrails on which the economic engine would run so the when he came in 2014 india was a very different country than what it is now nobody had the unique uh, you know identification number now 1.2 billion people have a uid number all of them are linked into government you know uh, databases so every way an individual interacts with the broad economy it's easier for an individual to interact it's also easier for auditing agencies agencies to monitor what's going on so the government's tax revenues have been going up uh, there's a lot of digitization in uh, you know in in india's economy right now india is like a data mine in uh, incubation it's it's a data mine which is being you know uh, every day there are billions and billions of tra- transactions that are getting added to the yeah. uh, uh, all these uh, data uh, government databases I mean, so the next term in my opinion would be pushing uh, the this economic engine on the guardrails that were put in the first term i mean i think so i look at you just look at the market so the sensex is now at an all time high now what's interesting if i look back to 10 12 years ago the currency's weight down so like india in us dollar terms hasn't gone anywhere in over a decade right. and so it's sort of interesting shree like how did the election shape up from your perspective and then we should talk a little bit about what we'll expect going forward yeah i thought that they would win but with the reduced margin and probably need the support of other parties clearly this was uh, not the magnitude of victory was was a clear surprise um what it also says as i agree with gaurav is that it gives him more uh, room to carry out more substantive reforms that people have been complaining about that he didn't do in the first term uh, there is market friendly reforms which is what most economists and financial market people are concerned about i think the reforms that he did in the first term were actually also quite substantive in in many ways um and whether they are what exactly is going to do whether they're going to do it i mean i i think the from what i've heard from some people uh, to who who are plugged in is that they are seriously considering some of the uh, economic reforms especially with respect to labor and uh, and and land acquisition which is one of the bigger problems for india the cost structure it adds to the cost structure so uh, i think yes i mean naturally you can see that's why the sensex has gone up it's i mean the valuations are incredibly high but 
the expectations are also sky high. So what are these big, ba- you talk about land acquisition, maybe give a little bit more context. What what are the issues that they need to reform? Why is it so expensive, you know, relative to say the US or other markets? So in India, you know, I mean, obviously in poor countries, rights are not as secure, not because the laws are not there, but because the poor people are not aware of their rights and do not know how to enforce them, right, in the courts. Um, So in the past, what has happened is uh, people have been evicted and not been given their proper due uh, from from the land, especially tribal people. I mean, it's not egregious compared to some other developed countries, developing countries, but certainly not something that should have been done. So what happened was there's always been this, this issue. So the previous government passed uh, land acquisition bill that was pretty uh, draconian in the sense that it made acquiring land incredibly cumbersome and the cost of it also very, very high. Um, so the minimum cost that you were supposed to pay, uh, and I forget the exact details, was very high. Um, so anybody wanting to set up uh, a factory or you know, or for infrastructure, um, acquiring land is becomes prohibitively expensive, um, which is why, you know, when people say, how is Vietnam and Bangladesh doing so much better than India and textiles, why can't we do that? But you can't acquire land to make those kind of small margin uh, industries like textiles uh, profitable in a place like India. And then, which brings me to the second point, which is labor reform. India's labor laws are incredibly onerous. So if you have any factory of any skill that is above 100 you cannot hire and fire people without getting the government's permission. Hmm. So, which automatically means that you can't create economies of scale. You have to make all these uh, inefficient scale because you want to remain below that 100 employee mark and and in fact even below 20 sometimes where you get some even more breaks. So, um, those reforms, people have been talking about that for 25 years. Nobody has touched them so far. Okay, I'm not sure whether he's going to be able to touch it, but just to give you an idea about how much resistance there is to these kind of reforms. I think in terms of reforms, there are two sort of sets of reforms which he can uh, push for, in my opinion. One is sort of low-hanging reforms, low-hanging fruits. These are essentially pushing for policies towards fiscal and, you know, pushing fiscal and monetary policies that are going to be supportive of growth in the near term. Uh, Continuing to, you know, simplification of taxation structure, a lot of it has already been done under GST, but, you know, there are still few kinks that need to be resolved. Uh, Working on those little changes that's going to improve uh, tax revenue collection for government, uh, monetizing of loss-making assets, uh, government-owned enti- um, enterprises, uh, uh, getting away from that, um, liquidity injection into public sector banks, and there are these NBFCs, which is non-banking financial corporations in India, You know, essentially government-owned entities in most cases that lend to infrastructural projects or other medium enterprises. So banking sector in India has been under a lot of stress, especially the public sector banks and the government has been working with RBI to sort of resolve this by injecting liquidity into banks. So that that's a sort of a easy reforms to go for because general public doesn't care for that much. Now the next set of reforms which is what uh, Shri just mentioned whether it's land acquisition or labor reforms that's going to be hard and that comes down to you know being the, um, uh, the, the cost you pay for being a democratic country. Land in India is publicly owned so any highway that you build is definitely going to run on somebody's backyard and that guy is going to complain. 
Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Srinivas Thiruvadantai, the Director of Le- Research at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, Gaurav Sinha, uh, an Associate Director here at Wisdom Tree. Um, and it, it's sort of interesting, Srinivas, that we talk about, you talked about why doesn't India compete with the, the Bangladesh on, on sort of this textiles, but also, you know, the reputation of India is much more of a, a thing about emerging markets being very tied to China, the trade, how we started the conversation, they're much more of a local economy consumption-oriented story or of a growth story and less exposed to the trade war in some ways. Um, now, it's interesting. I mean, they have a tech outsourcing and, and sort of right after the election, you saw the currency rise and you saw tech underperform sort of the financials and some sure. of the local economy sectors from that outsourcing perspective, I think. But any any commentary on how you think India is tied into the global trade issues? Right, so if you look at China exposure, and a lot of the, the, the street banks put out this stuff, if you look at the China exposure, India is, comes out always the lowest in that. <laughs> uh, because India actually runs a pretty big net trade deficit with China. Very big, and um, there is a lots of Chinese like products. US. Yeah, just like the U.S., there are a lot of Chinese products in being sold in India, including consumer products. So, in that sense, uh, India is obviously because it's a net deficit country. If there is, if there is, the global trade shrinks, both exports and imports shrink. The, the net deficit shrinks. Of course, you know, exports also shrink. So it's not like it, you're immune to it, but you are less affected by it. India is a largely a big domestic economy story, and that is what it is. And GST makes it even more attractive because now you're creating a large domestic ma- economy without any internal barriers, which used to be there when you went from one state to the other, a domestic market that you've created. Uh, and, and that is why if you look at the Indian market, it always trades at a premium to most of the EMs. And you, if you wait for India to get cheap, you might get it once in 10 years and you have to be really lucky at the time, like 2009, and you, you have to grab that situation. Otherwise, it rarely ever trades cheap. What about the currency, which is the one that's declined? You know, I mean, the reason why, in dollar terms, that's indicting thing is the stocks are high, right? But in the currency, any any thoughts on the currency side? Well, we, India had high inflation in from 2009 to 2014, right? Yeah. Uh, so in 2013, when it was known as a fragile five because of the inflation and the high current account deficit, so you know the currency adjustment is largely a reflection of of that. Yeah. Uh, from 2013 onwards, the currency has been more or less you know up and down. It's gone up, but it's it's it was. In 2013, I checked, it was at 69, it's back again at 69. So it has now been stable for the last four years, five years. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a part of it is also because of the fact that reviving manufacturing is one of the was one of the key agenda items of Modi 1.0. They wanted to go for manufacturing. They realized that you know India is not like China where they can overnight build factories. So they kind of uh, went back on that uh, initiative a little bit. But what it meant was that all this time between 2014 and 2018, as the macro fundamentals of the country were improving. RBI was regularly stepping into forex markets and buying dollars and you know selling rupee assets so therefore rupee was I wouldn't say artificially uh, uh, you know being uh, weakened but it was certainly uh, over undervalued compared to what the actual macro fundamentals would suggest so if I'm an investor into India right now I wouldn't be too much worried about currency because macro fundamentals by and by large except for one or two things here and there are really uh, solid so rupee actually looks undervalued compared to dollar not overvalued at this point in my opinion 
Yeah, uh, and I agree with that. I think 10 years ago, the rupee was at 40, right? I mean, I think yeah. uh, in two, no, not 10 years ago. In 2007, it, it, the, the highest reached it was 40. Yeah. And so, 35, yes. Yeah. So, at that time, uh, clearly it was overvalued. And then the Indian market was, a, you know, at the peak of the cycle, it was being valued at 25 or something like that, you know. Um, it's very different right now. Even though valuations are similarly high, uh, we are not at the peak of the cycle. The profits recovery cycle, it's at the bottom of the profit cycle in some sense. So the the real issue is um, in where, what has India done relative to the rest of the world other than the US, which is obviously clearly an outlier. Um, and I think uh, the, what the last four or five years especially have been is digesting a lot of the excesses that happened in the 10 years before that, uh, especially debt on the corporate side, cleaning it up and retrenching it and bringing the banking system back into, uh, into shape. And I think the foundations are there for a better story going forward. Yeah, well, we uh, look at India in a few different ways. One of them is looking at just looking at where are the earnings coming from and to try to manage the valuation risk, as you're saying. It is one of the more expensive mm -hmm. markets. And you can see mid-20s on the Sensex. And part of that's the tech bias and the consumer bias. But when you just look at where are earnings coming from, I mean, I'm looking at an index today of around 15 times trailing earnings and 13 times forward earnings. I mean, that's a pretty reasonable for a high growth country, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it seems reasonable. Right. Right. And I mean, it kind of makes sense also because when countries are growing at seven and a half percent, when a country is growing at a seven and a half percent growth rate, it creates so much of tailwinds that, you know, you can simply as a company, you can simply piggyback on that tailwind and, you know, just run your operation efficiently and you will still continue to generate profits and earnings. You don't have to come up with a earth shattering new idea to you to, to have profitable uh, um, earning stream for you, for you, for, for your company. Now, one of the macro we talked about when they were fragile five country, you know, one of the macro variables, why do they have so much imports? I mean, they were importing gold as a, uh, as like a store of value. Um, and they sort of clamped down on some of that, but also oil, they were doing a lot of subsidies for oil. So that hurt their budget deficit. It hurt their trade deficits. What's the view on, I mean, and oil has come down, and, right. and so that might be helpful. Any views there on oil and how you look at that? So, um, so India's two Achilles heel uh, has always been, one has been oil. Um, if you look through history, whenever oil prices have gone through the roof, they've always created a problem. Right, 2013 was one, one example. But if you go back to even 1990, the, the BOP crisis was caused by the Gulf War, right? Um, then before that, 1973, even in 1982, there were always problems with oil because India imports all of almost all of its oil, 70-80% um, or maybe more. Um, and because of that, uh, when price shoots through the roof, there is, there is a problem. The other thing is Indians tend to import a lot of gold. Partly because of historical reasons, you know, obviously Indians love gold, um, but also because um, it's an inflation hedge, right? And uh, the traditionally the interest rates were not high enough to provide you a cover against inflation. However, I went back and looked. Over the last 30 years, some of the popular 
things that people invest in, like the public pension fund, uh, public, uh, no, it's public provident fund, PPF, um, where the interest rates are actually subsidized, which means you get a higher interest of mm. if you put your money in there. They have actually given a reasonably solid real return over the last 30 years. Um, and now, actually, India has one of the highest real interest rates. Plus, what has happened is, because of demonetization, as, as uh, Gaurav was talking about, um, gold, people are not any longer putting, a lot of the gold demand reflected um, black money, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. parallel economy and black money. And people are actually taking, not putting money in gold. In fact, gold imports now hit a six-year low or something like that. Uh, no, 10-year low this year, uh, last year, in 2018. Um, so gold imports are coming down. People are actually losing the the allure of gold is going down. So that one Achilles sale is gone. And oil is clearly not where it was six, seven years ago at 120, you know, so it's clearly not there. So between those two things, India's, the balance of payments, the current account situation is much better, in a much better shape. And so is the inflation situation because oil feeds through into all kinds of things in, into inflation. So if you look at inflation, actually it's been below the RBI's target consistently. Yep. You know, at, at around 2.9% uh, inflation in India, I actually expect RBI to continue cutting rates. Yeah. So, so Gaurav, you can be, you know, we, we say you're from India and, and you could be a cheerleader for India sometimes. <laughs> and so on our yeah. allocation committees, uh, we say, oh, it's Gaurav bullish India. Um, <laughs> but you were, you know, a little bit hesitant last year. And now you're, you're you know, at our similar related discussions, you said you like India again. Um, and obviously, the, the, the election is helpful. but Right. I mean, the reason why last Last year, uh, I think when you're saying last year, you, you mean like towards the end of 2017, I was a bit hesitant because we're coming right after demonetization and that actually had an impact for lingering impact for uh, next two, three quarters. So as an investment professional, I was hesitant on, you know, being super overweight on India at a time when the small and medium enterprises were struggling. But all of that effect gone and the positive uh, tailwinds now, um, you know, after the tough uh, demonetization was done and the new uh, political stability that this election has provided I'm, I'm quite bullish on India for the time being now Shri, how do you I mean, it's the same with the 2018. There were there was the GST, uh, and, and uh, there was also the uh, effect of the banks uh, still struggling. What what the what the RBI did was they toughened the norms on uh, banks not showing bad loans. They they showed you have to show bad loans, right? And suddenly the banking system seemed to have huge amount of bad loans, and they have now worked through that. Especially the bank, which comes back to the reform point. The new bankruptcy code has actually enabled banks to recover a lot of bad loans compared with the past. Uh, the recovery rate has hit 50%. And in the past, I remember I worked for actually ICICI in India. Back then it was not a bank, it was the an, largest uh, private was bank a, in India. Yeah, it was, at that time it was an industrial credit. So it, they used to give long term loans. We used to give long term loans. There was like recovery, like it would take ages in recovering bad loans and you would not get anything on it. And, and you would get pennies to the dollar. And so what has changed is because of that the NPA problem is actually now starting to um, improve um, in the in the banking system and the second aspect which the the teething problems in in GST is clearly behind us 
And third is the uncertainty of the elections. That was quite serious because you, last year, um, FDI inflows in India actually fell for the first time in six years because of the uncertainty with who's going to come in, what's going to happen. And now those uncertainties have been resolved. I, I, I expect things will actually start to look up, both in terms of inflows of FDI and portfolio flows have already picked up very strongly, uh, but, but also in terms of uh, the the domestic capex uncertainty has been resolved and i think it, we'll, we'll see pick up in, in all of those things well guys it was a pleasure it was good to get the pre-election views get the post-election commentary i thank you so much for joining us on on our show today thanks thank you i'm your host jeremy schwartz here with professor jeremy siegel and peter maluk the ceo or president of creative planning Peter, uh, welcome to New Jersey. Thanks for coming into town and doing a first for us, recording a show live from the beach. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the best view I've ever had on a podcast. So th <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit, I mean, creative planning, uh, big in the headlines, a $40 billion RIA, one of the biggest wealth management firms. You get a lot of reward for the, the nation's top financial planning firms. Tell us, how did you come to creative? So creative planning was actually one of the first um, firms in the country, first registered investment advisors, started in the early 80s by these three guys that also had an insurance company. And it was a small firm, it was kind of a side project for them. And uh, in 1998, uh, they became one of my clients where I would handle their legal and planning for some of their clients. Uh, and in 04, after having done that for many other advisors too, I wanted to have a firm that was independent, uh, managed money to clients in a tailored way, and was able to take care of other things I was doing for my clients like legal and tax. I'm also an estate attorney. And he had, he was ready to retire. And so I took over in 2004. At that time, they had a, a few dozen clients and and, uh, and that's the, when we the rest started. is history. Yeah. Wisdom tree. Yeah. yeah, 2004. Parallel timelines, that's yeah. right. Yeah, first ETF was in 2016 to 2004 was the official launch of the yeah. company. So you're, you've been in business as long as, as we have. That's right. <laughs> and, so, and so your firm is one of the fastest growing firms. Mm -hmm. um, how, what sort of, what's the, the, the secret behind all this growth? Well, I think it's like, it's like making a cake. There's a lot of different ingredients. You can't be missing one of the ingredients. Um, but I think that we were ahead of the curve on a lot of the trends in the industry. So uh, in 04, we had stopped uh, when I'd taken over it was duly registered and we had to remove that well that's become something that's become more popular today but back and then, duly registered for the people who are just listening in. it's an advisor that's a broker and an independent advisor at the same time so we had we had just gone pure independent um, I think second we were we were buying ETFs when we had to explain what an ETF was to a client <laughs> uh, I know that uh, about five years in a couple reps of, of some ETF places told us we were the largest holder of their ETFs, and I know today that's still the case. But I mean, we were ahead on on that. We were passive uh, when active was very popular, um, and we were doing financial planning before people were doing it. And, and it was a lot of things like that. So we had a very good jump start, and I think the comprehensive nature of what we provide has been very helpful as well. So now Goldman Sachs made some news. Yeah. Um, one of your fellow firms, United Capital, got got acquired. Um, I mean, what does that say to you about the industry? Like, how do you, th you think this is going to be a new trend? And and just what's what's the landscape for independent advisors going forward? Well, I think what you're seeing is you, know, you called us at the top of the the podcast a, a big uh, firm, but we're really I mean, very very tiny in the grand scheme of things. We manage about forty billion. You compare that to the custodians that are all multi-trillion, the brokerage houses are all multi-trillion. 
Um, and uh, you, you go to the independent world, we look big, but that's because the independent world's relatively new. We're actually very, very, very small. If you want, you're talking about hundreds of employees and 40 billion in assets. Uh, I think you know, big. You've got to be you're probably double, tri- at least tri- you know, double, triple where where we are today. And then and then at least you've got one one thousandth of the market share, and, and you can say uh, you're a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. But what I think you're seeing is we now have about ten firms or so that are thirty billion and up, twenty five billion and up. And I think we're going to see some of those get bought by strategic buyers. Right now, a private equity firm buys into one and then sells out later uh, to another private equity firm, but they're getting big enough. That you're seeing strategic firms interested. I don't think it, it's surprising. It's not surprising <clears throat> to me that Goldman Sachs bought a firm. Uh, it won't be surprising to me when a custodian. What do you think the economies of scale are that uh, motivate that? I think, unfortunately, uh, I think that you, you've got a couple things. I mean, the, the fortunate part is I think Goldman Sachs is probably saying, hey, we work with all these super rich people. We've got ACO, which is another RA they bought a long time ago or that uh, works with executives. And now they're going to have an RIA that deals with people you know, that have hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to invest. And I don't know if they'll change the brand or not or how that's going to work, but I think that would be an outlet for that. But the other component is um, that, that Goldman Sachs has a lot of products, right? And I, I think this is going to be an interesting dialogue the, the wealth management industry is going to have, the independent space is going to have about what does independent mean? Um, to me, independent means that that you're a fiduciary, you're a registered investment advisor, and you're not selling your own products to the client. Um, I think that for other people, just if you're a fiduciary, that means you're independent. So I personally could never uh, take creative planning and imagine selling it to a brokerage house. Uh, but that's just my my personal view because I know someday the brokerage house's products are probably going to find their way into my client uh, portfolios one way or another. I know that Joe Duran, who I think very, very highly of, who is the was is running United Capital, said, "You know, look, that's he sees he sees that that's not going to happen, and and yeah, I guess well, time will tell how that's going to play out." Let, let me put a question back to you. So you talk about the the definition of independence being not using like your own products, but you're also, you let's say you're using a lot of passive, you're paying another asset manager yeah. a big amount of fees as the largest hold of their ETFs, where you might be able to manufacture that yourselves cheaper. I think the issue is once you get, well, I think first I'm not, I don't think we can manufacture it cheaper. If you look at where a lot of ETFs are now, yeah, uh, I think they are where they are, not because of their construction, because of the investment in the, in, in the ETF itself. So ETF has so many assets they can lower the incremental cost and maintain yep. the same or greater profitability. We would never achieve that scale to be able to do that. And but you have the scale, frankly. Well, it would immediately put us at co- in conflict with our clients. So let's say that we have a small cap ETF, uh, but there's another small cap ETF that does what we want. Maybe we want small value uh, ETF. Uh, now we have the creative planning small value ETF. And you know, let's say Wisdom Tree lowers their fees uh, considerably below ours. Now I'm going to go down the hall and fire all the people that are running the creative planning yeah. small value ETF, or am I going to find a way to justify uh, the small value ETF? I'd like to think that I would never do that, but um, I would. I'm not always going to be the owner, and I'm not always going to be the decision maker. It's almost impossible yeah. not to lose that independence. That's right. That's I think what you're saying. You're just a- immediately a doctor who who owns medication in the medicine cabinet, and the patient shouldn't be surprised if they get more of that medicine. Mm, right. Right. And so when you, when you think about 
so you you still it's nice to be humble and to say you're small and that you're still you have big aspirations i assume right. with so what's the growth strategy what how do you is it buying other firms getting people to join creative what's the story to a smaller independent who might want to join i mean our strategy to, to this point has been we're going to have the absolute best offering that any ria can have we wake up every day and go are we offering the best that an, an american uh investor wants wants an independent advisor are we going to be the best one available to them and anytime we think we're failing in one of those areas we do we do our best uh to have the very best offering and then to have the very best people that's how we've gotten to where we are today now i've i've not been a fan of acquisitions because if you look at a billion dollar firm and it acquires three firms now it's three billion uh to me it's like a, a little baby tree and you go tack a bunch of heavy branches on it i mean the it doesn't feel right uh, at 40 billion, we do have the scale and the systems and the teams and the processes in place and a very strong culture that when we go at a $500 million firm, it doesn't change our culture. It it doesn't, the whole firm doesn't bend to that new uh, firm. Uh, that new firm uh, is coming to us because they're going, hey, you know, 30,000 clients chose creative planning. That's not 30,000 clients that were acquired by creative planning, which if you look at all of our top 10, you know, independent wealth management firms, uh, to my knowledge, it's acquisitions, and so really, I think if, if you're a if you're a firm looking to sell, you look at creative planning and say, "Hey, these guys, clients want to go there. They didn't get to 40 billion by just acquiring all these clients." So I feel now that we've got that strong trunk, that we are attractive to to firms, and uh, it's attractive to us to add acquisition as part of our strategy. But the goal is still organic growth as much as possible, and uh, we're going to supplement it with acquisitions. When you say organic growth from, you mean obviously the assets of your clients, but also- New clients, yeah. New clients that come in through recommendations of the client base you That's have, right. rather than buying from the outside. That's exactly right. So you look at us, us year to date, we've probably had one and a half billion of just clients coming to creative planning, and we made one acquisition that had almost 500 billion in assets. And I think that's a nice path for us to, increase our growth rate and our national presence um, without you know, changing the, the culture that we've built. And what's the sort of top three reasons people come? Like what when when they're choosing you over one of these other independents or a wirehouse, I mean, why, why are they coming to you? I think there are a lot of reasons. I think one, they like um, the breadth and depth of services. You know, so there are a lot of firms that say, oh, we, you know, we, we manage money. Well, we have 50 traders. We have a full options team. We have an alternative investments team. We have a fixed income team. We are dedicated uh, to managing the money uh, towards the client's needs uh, with specialists. You know, a lot of firms our size are outsourcing those things uh, and that becomes a problem or they're putting everybody in one of 40 or you know, four or 40 models, and they hit a button and trade everybody at the same time. You know, we're not, that's not the way we're managing money at Creative. Uh, I think that's a very big part of it. I think the other big part of it is they want to be with an independent firm, but they want to feel safe. See, so they look at a brokerage house, billions of dollars, uh, uh, trillions of dollars, they feel safe, but they don't like the conflict. They come to the independent world. Firms have hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't maybe have that same sense of security. Um, but there's no conflict, and creative is giving them the best of, of both worlds. I think that's why our growth has, uh, has accelerated of late. And I, I think they love that we don't sell our own, our own products. It's a big part of it. Let me, let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Peter Maluk uh, of Creative Planning about his firm and their, their growth profile. Professor, I interrupted. No, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, 
I, I was just wondering, so you do estate planning services, what insurance services, what, what is the panoply of services that you give them? So at first, I haven't gotten to say this yet. I mean, your book it was uh, an inspiration to get into the industry, and I mean, he's just shrugging his shoulders because he hears that all the time, but I mean, it. It's uh, this is something that, you know, obviously could have been done over the phone, but I'm honored to be here sitting with you uh, uh, doing this live. Thank you. Um, and when a client comes in, they're doing money management, financial planning with us, but from there they might do legal work with us, tax work with us. Uh, we will help them if they've retired early and, and it's too soon for Medicare, we can help them with their health insurance. You know, some of these things, I mean, people in the industry know that you can't make money doing an individual health insurance policy. That's not what it's about. What it's about is solving the client's problems. Is it like a family office to some extent? Well, that's what we, you know, we have on our wall. You know, Barron's uh, once did a story on us and the headline was family office for all. And that's mm -hmm. uh, you know, prominently displayed on one of the floors in our building. I think that's how we see ourselves. So you don't have to be a multi-billionaire to be that's exactly, get family office services. You're that's saying. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Is taxes like a key element of that? When you're, are you doing everybody's taxes, most people's taxes? Well, we only do what the client wants. Okay. Right. So if the client comes in and says, "Look, I love my CPA. I'm perfectly happy," we say, "That's wonderful. Keep that relationship." You know, if your CPA is retired, or you've moved, or they've moved, or you want to consolidate, or for whatever reason, then we'll do the. We, we have the ability to do the taxes. We have the ability to do small business accounting, bill pay. So there's a lot of depth in each of these departments and what we're able to do. To, to do that all in-house too, or do you? All in-house. All in-house. Yeah. Building your own technology? Some of some of our own technology yeah. and some some third party. So where do you decide what, what, the, what that line is? Well, for us, if, if we can solve it externally, that's gonna be our, that's gonna be our choice 100% of the time. We don't wanna be in the technology development business. But if we think we can do something better, or we think, uh, like for example, with our planning software, there are all these things we wanted to do that were very, it, it took us more energy and time to deal with the vendor than to create our own from scratch. So we are almost done creating our own from scratch. So that's an example of when we would look to do something in-house. What, what are, do you find the concerns of investors today from your clients? What, what are they asking you about? What are they worried about? How do how do you set up the portfolio or their financial structure to avoid some of the fears that they might have? You know, I think that the, the main fear they have is one they really can't articulate. And I think that they, they really feel like the world is different. And it's interesting because I look at investing and I, I would divide it in two. On the one hand, the part that's not different is the market goes down and it comes up. And we have corrections every year. We have bear markets every couple of years. It's normal. I, I don't lose any sleep wondering, is the S&P 500 going to come back? Uh, that part's the same. And I think they know that uh, in their minds and hearts. But something feels different to them. And it really is a different world because I'll, what's different now is things move much faster. Yeah. So, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, pre-internet, what a cycle was just longer. You know, now you could have like December, we had a full-blown bear market and recovery in four weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it does feel different. And an example I use with our team is, you know, you go to a, you used to go to a restaurant uh, when I was younger and you'd go, oh, this restaurant isn't very good. It might not last a few years. Well, if it doesn't, it's not very good now. It might not last a few months. <laughs> Though we, we 
punish the losers quicker, we reward the winners faster, and I think it's overwhelming. Information to, flows so much faster. That's, that's right. It. And, and so the market's become more efficient. I think just very alarming to people, and, and they can't put their finger on what's different, but that, I think that's what it is that creates a lot of anxiety for, for today's investor. Is it the changing demographics that they're just getting older so they can't take that much risk? And then did they, did, in the fourth quarter, were people panicking and you, you keep them in, or how did you think about that? Well, I would tell you, this is you know, not even a bit of a story. I don't, I can't recall one client calling me in December. So one of the advantages of really having a needs-based investment approach with a tremendous amount of education behind it and a plan is that our clients are informed. They do understand how the markets work. They do understand what they what they own and why they own it, what they have in place to meet their needs if there's a prolonged bear market. So our, our clients, I don't worry about. That's the people just coming right on board and they haven't learned all of that yet. Uh, those are the ones but that we really... You know, it isn't so easy. You've done a good job. <laughs> Peter Bernstein wrote uh, forward to my first edition of Stocks right. for a Long Run. And in that, he describes when he started out, he explained exactly what you did to one of the clients. He said, we're going to have a bear market. you got to stick with me. It comes back and your returns are going. And the person nodded his head and nodded his head. <laughs> nodded, you know the story. Yeah. As soon as that bear market came, he came yeah. in the past, sell it. He said, no, just a minute. We don't sell it. I'm just, you know, he, he just panicked. And God, yeah. I said, you know, people can understand things intellectually. Doesn't mean they can deal with it emotionally. That's right. And, and uh, if you've done a really good job, if you can hold their hand at that point and say, listen, you know, stick with me. Yes. Uh, yep. and, uh, and they'll always appreciate it. If you they can. will. you got to get them through the first one. That's right. And uh, then, then they're more on board each yeah, time. Right. Yeah. I mean, you talked about using having an alternative team, and that's one of the things a lot of people are doing for volatility management. People have mm-hmm. low expected returns. Professor, there's more and more I hear. I was at a conference this week. Somebody thought the next 10 years was going to be 4% expected return. So I'll let Is you that know. nominal too? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll let you 2% combat, real. I'll let yeah. you combat that. But what, what do you think about the alternatives? Well, I think, I mean, I think this people are scared of the stock market. And so they're going to alternatives. And alternatives are investments in the same economy. It's just private right. versions that are public. I mean, private equity. I mean, we talk about it like it's a separate asset class. And to me, it's really... It's the stock. It's the private version of the stock market. You're an right. equity owner. It's an equity asset class, and private lending you can liken to bonds and private real estate to real estate. So you get a little bit of uh, a little bit of volat- volatility. Different. They behave a little bit differently. They have their own micro issues, but also you don't get reporting every day. Right. And I think a lot of people are just paying not to be alarmed on a daily basis. Um, and I think that's a, a big part of it is the psychology. But you you can reduce the volatility with a good combination. You can improve the expected return, but you really have, it's very different than the public markets. I think here, manager selection is a very big deal. Having access to best in classes is very important. And then being able to put up with the complexity of, of the extra K-1s and maybe the delayed tax return and the illiquidity and the cash calls and all that stuff. For a lot of our clients, they say that's, I'm putting that in the not worth, worth it category. And some I think are really intrigued by it. And so we have that team and where it's appropriate, we use it. You know, it, it's interesting. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, um, managed, I think, an endowment for uh, King's College. 
Um, and uh, when they were discussing what to put in it, uh, this person said, oh, I want to be in real estate. And he said, why? Well, because it's nowhere near as volatile right. as it's a stock market. And he said, you know, if I had to get you a quotation every day for this real estate, you'd realize how volatile it really is. Because yeah. if there's bad things going on, you're not going to get a quote for it. That's right. <laughs> you know, and but people think they're protected because they don't, you know, yep. somehow it doesn't get reported. Yep. You know, we had stock market like once a week. They say, oh, it's so much more stable. Right. <laughs> I, I remember in the 08, 09 crisis, we would update, you know, we always update the financial plans for clients. We'd come in and we'd go, okay, your, st your U.S. stocks are down, your international stocks are down, yeah. your emerging market stocks are down. Uh, your, and then we'd go to their, their homes uh, or their rental properties. And they'd say, oh, it's the same, it's the same, it's yeah, the same. Yeah, not, really. So, not really. But <laughs> not you can, really. But you're allowed to you know, put your head in the sand, right? Retax fell. Of, you know, it's interesting because in the financial crisis, it's held up well at the beginning and then just went down the tube at the end yeah. and actually had a bigger decline than the stock market itself. I mean, yes. it's just, again, you think that real estate was safe and then they realized, no. <laughs> right. That's right. I was at this uh, conference in Missouri this week and uh, Michael Mobison was talking about the private equity as, you know, there's a lot of, it was a lot of private equity people, a lot of venture capital people. And they started off the conference with somebody attacking the big miss. And, he, and there was a quote that I'll, I'll repeat, like 94% of institutional investors expected private equity to outperform the equity markets. Yeah. And this, and this is a gentleman who's, who doesn't, you know, doesn't, right. was attacking all these myths. And, um, and he talked about the endowments that are shifting, how much more they're adding to private equity, they're shifting out of fixed income, and it's because of this volatility well, reduction that they're not seeing the marks. Let, yes. me, let, me, let me give a little bit of a justification. I mean, there is good theory that a less liquid asset should give you a higher return. Right than a more liquid asset. I mean, you know, I mean, the prime example, we see that in the government bond market, the underruns and the offeruns and, and everything like that. So there is a little bit of a premium. So in a way, if I have private equity or illegal venture capital or whatever there, in the long run, but if you go through the math on it, it's not much of a difference. They think it's a big difference. Well, I think Maybe it's a half a percent, and if they need to sell it, they can't at that point. So in, in the public market, you know, the private market, if and then again, and they can't get the diversification in the venture capital because they they can't, I mean, we can, we can get an index fund of, you know, 5,000 stocks everywhere and they can't do that. Mm -hmm. So they're, they, they're buying illiquidity, which should give you a little bit of high return, but they're much less diversified, which is against them on a risk return trade-off. Yeah, I think if you look at private equity, I mean, oftentimes they use the wrong benchmark. So they compare to the S&P 500 and so the small cap um, index. But you do get a liquidity premium. But I think if you segment it out based on uh, managers, I think you do see a different outcome if you use the top managers in that space. I mean, if you're using the top 20 private yeah. equity firms, I mean, there's 8,000 private equity yeah. funds. And I yeah. mean, it, too many. there's a private equity fund on every corner and some of them are run by two people and they buy four local yeah. companies. And yeah. obviously as a group, they're not going to outperform the S&P 500, but do I ex expect a sophisticated private equity firm that's buying 30 or 40 companies all over the country that's done one every year for 20 years you know, to probably I do a little bit better? I do. One of the biggest shams, people you know, think it's a different asset class. Oh, you should have 5% in private equity, 10% like it is really an uncorrelated asset class yeah. with everything else. And if you, it isn't, but it sounds like, oh yeah, you, uh, you know, then it pays to be a little fund and someone says you got to have at least 5% and then you can, if you can sell it to them, you know, that's 
big bucks. So there's too many people in there. It's like hedge fund managers. There's too just many too, people. Too there many. are good people in it, and there's a lot of people that are just there to collect the fees and are right. just going to underperform. So you, you can do well, but you have the right manager, I think. Yes. You increase, that yes. makes the difference. Yes. Um, maybe as, as we're getting closer to the end of our conversation, I, I think you described your client as like the millionaire next door. Is, yeah. is that an appropriate description? Like, how would you say, you know, the people who are looking for, for creative? So we have our typical clients in our private wealth group, and they're the, the millionaire next door or the multimillionaire next door, we call them. We also have an emerging wealth practice for people that are that are below our half million dollar minimum, and we will work with them online and, and still provide all the ancillary Advice, and then we have an ultra fluent practice, which was one, which is the fastest growing part of our practice, where maybe we have five, six billion plus in assets, where it's people whose net worth is in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions, and uh, that's become a very important part of our practice as well. And I think that group values the family office aspect more than the others, uh, and so it's been a very, it's been probably the most exciting part of our practice to watch unfold. Any uh, any sort of closing thoughts about creative, where you're going, the future of, of the business? Well, I mean, I, I, my hope is I, there's so many things in this business that we're in that we don't control. You know, what, what the stock market does, the bond market, recessions, uh, politics and all of those things. But so my focus has always been, can I get up in the morning and can my can our team get up in the morning and say, you know, the, everyone here is doing the best they can to make this the best place every day. And this is the best, if not one of the best places for an investor to be. And if, if we do that, I'm perfectly happy. I mean, that's the that's the rest of the stuff I can't control. Uh, and But I found that when you do that, the rest of the stuff tends to work out. So Very nice. The plan. And Professor, any, any comments on what he can expect from stocks and bonds uh, for the next well, 10 years? Well, I definitely think more than 2%. <laughs> uh, I mean, 2% uh, after inflation. Wow. I mean, you know, my models say it's going to be a little bit lower than our long run, which is 65 to 7, maybe a point lower. You know, I say, you know, 5, 5.5. But uh, that's still, I mean, astronomical compared to bonds, fixed right. income. The you know the equity risk premium is very generous right now. The cushion is is in there, and uh, yeah, so equity is still the place to be. I think. How do you see international versus U.S.? Well, you know, I know it's been a tough slog for international. Um, it all you know it always the best asset class is always the asset class that in retrospect has done the worst. <laughs> I mean, it's almost right. a mathematical truism, right? right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think emerging markets have taken a little hit now with the trade things going up, but I think they look not only fundamentally sound, but even I've, I've talked to technicians that say their, their charts are really beginning. They, they put in a bottom in December and that uh, there's a little bit of storm now, but... Uh, they they think that they're going to be good and um, and and uh, even Europe and Japan selling 20 30 percent under the U.S. is 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 going to work out in the long run and I think you know I, I not only stocks for the long run but what stuff what Jeremy worked out early on and future for investors valuation trumps growth in the long run if you get something cheap it doesn't have to grow fast um, for it to be the best investment in the long run. 
Well, as a firm that globally diversifies, I'll just say from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> well, Peter, it's been a fun conversation. Yes. Thank you for coming to the Jersey Shore to record our Behind the Markets uh, discussion today. Thank Absolutely. you for having me. Thank I've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Thanks to Peter, Professor Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.